Oh, hello. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, in the Great traditional start, yeah. just seen the thumbs up. Oh, this must be very real, <laughs> they thought of this podcast. Uh, hello and welcome to very Josie real. and Robin's Book Shambles, uh, in which the, uh, well, I don't know, what, anarchist firebrand, uh, <laughs> Josie Long, destroys Champagne all socialist. your Please. illusions. Uh, and broadcaster. Uh, do you know, I, I annoy you when people call you a champagne socialist because I know you can't do it because you get gassy, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> not... I do. I've done dry January. Done dry, oh, dry well. January. Do you know what? I thought about doing that and then I thought, why? <laughs> I, ga- I gave up for a couple of years and I had to live with my own inner monologue. And uh, now you just bloody annoying. Send him down the river <laughs> yeah. on a nice bottle of wine. <laughs> and, and we are joined by uh, the uh, the actor uh, and broadcaster. Uh, everyone, by the way, is broadcaster. Just so okay. you know, everyone's broadcaster. <laughs> it's a, it's uh, the, a true. It's the, a real the, true. The actor and broadcaster, Lisa Duran. And we'll start off by before we get onto the books because the last time I saw you was in Toronto. Doing your final run of uh, a Beckett trilogy, Not I, Rockabye and Footfalls. And it was uh, the closest I've ever come to punching a bunch of people in the back of their neck um, for not behaving correctly when in the theatre. And so I just want to start on that bit where you're, it was in, incredible. Uh, it's an incredible trilogy. And... Uh, it was just fascinating to see. So for those who don't know, uh, one of the things that you're you're best known for is that you know you are now one of the, the kind of great Beckett actors. And I wanted to know the different how how you've seen audiences react to like Not I is well. Can you explain Not I again? Some people might not know uh, Not I might not know Not I is a lot harder than I thought initially. But uh, um, so but. Not I is in well in your version it's even shorter than the eighteen minute version. Was it twenty two minute was the, the longest? It started version? out being twenty two minutes. So for those of you who don't know, Not I is uh, a monologue, one of the most kind of difficult monologues ever in terms of trying to memorise it. Um, it is a, a stream of consciousness, not quite linear, but uh, a crazy uh, tirade, let's say, a torrent of words, um, written for a pair of lips. So it's a disembodied pair of lips eight foot above the stage, speaking at the speed of thought Beckett wanted it. And it was first performed in New York in 1972 by Jessica Tandy. And she, um, uh, actually 1971, and she um, came in at about 22 minutes. And then Beckett said uh, he would direct Billy Whitelaw in it himself and find out if it was theatre or not. And in the Royal Court in 1972, Billy did it in about 14 minutes. Back in 2005, I was cast in it and I did it, I think, roughly around 12 minutes. And now I do it in about eight and a half minutes. Bloody hell, is it that? So it's mm. like marathon racing. It this is, is like Roger Bannister. It is. And it, with that, Billy, I'm only able to do it because there was a Roger Bannister before me. And she broke a psychological barrier and made it possible. Um, so, you know, I'm only able to do it really because of her. Um, but it's an extraordinary piece. It's a punch in the solar plexus. It's frightening. Talk about audience reactions. We always lose a few to panic attacks. Wow. Um, in New York, there was a... <laughs> 
<laughs> there was a man crawling um, on his hands and knees out of the theatre in New York. I've heard people screaming, help me. Um, friends of mine who know what to expect to see how I'm tied into this head harness because you're only your lips are lit on stage. And to perform this piece, my whole body vibrates or gyrates. It's, uh, you know, extraordinarily taxing on the body. <laughs> and in order for my lips not to move out of this narrow strip of light, it's necessary to tie my head into a head harness and my body into brackets. And um, next thing, this really precise light just lights my lips. And then I go like the clappers. Um, and the toll it takes on the body is extraordinary. I'm always kind of pulling muscles in, in my God. buttocks or my calf. How did I pull a muscle my calf? Um but it's um, it's also exhilarating, and you know, the, removing the body is gorgeous as a woman. It's such a, a, a liberation. You spoke a minute ago about not caring about what you look like. It's 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 beautiful to just be completely liberated from that, and to be like a floating consciousness. And one of the things that happens in this entirely blackened out auditorium, where the lights are. Um, are removed and the exit lights are 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 turned off even like strip of leds are all covered over you've never been in a space so black you can't see the the hand in front of your face um and that's panic inducing mm. enough but when you see a pair of lips hovering eight foot above the stage talking at you with this giant tirade and you know manic laughter and intense violent screams and you know, uh, a mixture, a cacophony of voices, you start to feel the mouth is moving across the auditorium and that's individual for every single member of the audience and it's how their brain it's responds like to that. Yeah, it is. So it's a group hallucination and that freaks people out too. And just people being in that kind of silence, I don't think audiences are misbehaved. I think you are just more uh, aware of it in that kind of setting. Mm. I think your own panic... Uh, is ignited and also the the, the the silences highlight the, the, the noise around that silence. You know, I, I mean, I go to theatre all the time and it's extraordinary how people behave in the theatre. Um, you know, people decide to eat their lunch in the theatre yeah. or carry on their conversation yeah. that they've been having over dinner throughout. A, Bloody hell, when I went to see Jim Dale, right, and Jim Dale was brilliant as well. That, that's why my two favourite bits of theatre last year were watching uh, Lisa do the Beckett trilogy and watching Jim Dale uh, do songs from Barnum and talking about his uh, fascinating life, right? Oh, and I saw the adverts for them, that. It looked it amazing. Great. It was, it was absolutely brilliant because he he we, I think he's eighty now he's seventy nine then mm. uh, he looks he's exactly the same physically as he was you know when we first you know the, I mean in in the UK of course he's famous for the Carry On films but in America he doesn't even talk about the Carry On films you know he was Excellent. Olivier's fool he was in all he did all the comedy parts for mm. Olivier he Barnum a great Broadway actor. And how it had. Funny it's amazing how we, that. yeah, it's, it's amazing how we box people like that. Mm. How we can can only see him in this way, mm. you know. Mm. One got through, but he's a trout, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And we can't see beyond this. It's amazing our bite-sized view of yes. what's acceptable, yeah. who they are. Okay, you can get through, but only with that identity. Yeah, uh, I, I have that at the moment. You know, she's a Beckett actress. Huh. As if there's a distinction, you know, as if getting up there and and holding an audience's attention on your own for an hour isn't just acting or 
yeah. the alchemy of the theatre. Well, and also, as yeah. if you're, like, you're not an actor, first and foremost, working on a project. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there's the Jim Dale thing. So the bloke in front of me, he comes with... I mean, it was like a... It, it wasn't just a packed lunch. It was a full kit and caboodle there. Picnic. And he'd obviously requested most rustly-based sandwiches. <laughs> then he's looking at his phone all the time. Then he sees, oh, good, there's a plug just there. <laughs> I'll go and plug yes! my phone in. And I was sitting there going, right, any minute now, that's it. So twice now, I'm not going to theatre anymore. You heard about this in, in Broadway that someone plugged their phone in to the set. No! Yeah. No! Yeah. But I, I thought, right, I'm going to deal with this when it gets to the interval, but it didn't matter because all of the other people around me had already... This woman just went, she went, if you don't stop fiddle-faddling around... And and, and, this was, and it was like... It required this man being told, though. And I think it's an interesting thing where, like with comedy now, where for the big arena shows and the... the uh, a we're lot always of people doing I bigger, to, not the, nothing but arenas here. Oh, mate. let me yeah. tell you about when I supported New Order. Well, I didn't support it, it was my own show at Hammersmith's rather good. Anyway, so <laughs> the. Um, no, but I, we don't. That's the shows, not even, even when we do the larger shows, if we are in them, they're already based around science and kind of. So we're going to have a kind of a different kind of audience. But lots of uh, comedians who are playing, whether it's Hammersmith, Apollo, or beyond that, say the audience arrive, they stand up, they sit down again, they start talking to mm. each other, they get the phone out because. It's just, bec- it's lost when we were talking with uh, A.L. Kennedy a little bit about kind of the totemism of things. Uh, and it, the, it's it's now just, oh, here's a thing to entertain me. So yeah. because it's just for me, I can treat it how I want. That bit of going, right, here is a thing that has been created from a human's mind that is good, should hopefully capture beauty, humour, whatever it is. Now I'm part of that process. It's not just project everything into me mm. and I'll take it if I want it and I'll tweet it if I want it and I'll do whatever. It's actually, you've got to work with it as well. Yeah. I and mean, that's what I thought about watching that, uh, you know, that trilogy. And it is but weird, I... that mouth thing as well, because the light keeps, because of the way that the light's reflected off just that, like you're saying yeah. about the movement, it yeah. ended up feeling like, the, between all three of them, I had no sense of time whatsoever. Yeah. And you just, and I thought, and at times I was going, have I even listened to the last bit? What was going on? Was I listening? Have, am I lost in some other thought? I don't know what's going on. And then I thought, no, I did definitely hear the last bit. And so it's constantly, and when I went, it could have been 40 minutes, 20 minutes, or five hours mm. because it was, yeah. And the other thing that's interesting, but it's not entertainment. This is, uh, you know, an hour in a blackened out auditorium that just, isn't about entertainment. I always get upset when people use their phone even in the cinema because I think. What do you mean, even in the cinema? Well, well because at least in the, cinema, in the cinema. No, no, I know, I know. But at least in the cinema, there aren't people right in front of you. So I do think it's still bad. But like, I, I'm just. Yeah, so I'm right behind them think, and I'm fucking yes, watching them, Josie. Of course. But Wasn't I think someone 400... shot in the cinema in America? That was for nothing using to do phone. with me. That was nothing to do with me. <laughs> I would, I would things, use a crossbow. <laughs> things like that. It's uh, yeah. I mean, it's you can't. It's it's beyond. It's beyond the thing, isn't it? That's too... But an actor can't... I think an actor can't break the fourth wall. I mean, obviously, it's different for comics, but I can't go out there and discipline the audience. That's not my job. Do you ever wish you could? There are the odd times. You know, sometimes when I take my curtain call, I ask my stage manager to turn up the lights just so I can give them a death stare, which they don't see, but I (laughs) feel good about (laughs) that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, that was, we won't talk about I wrote that blog post afterwards that when you did the Q&A where, you know, when someone's asking a question, you go, yeah, you've asked it now. Stop talking. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I, I, nearly everyone else who was sitting. Uh, this man took Q&A. huge offence to the fact that he didn't understand 
the piece mm. and thought that that was a, a, a really offensive thing to bring to town. Mm. Um, and that's the thing about Beckett. He isn't selling anything. He doesn't have a story. He's not entertaining. There's nothing to buy here. There's no polemic. There's no PR. It just is. And it's yeah. about being. And a lot of people don't want to admit those kind of human experiences. But it is entertaining. It's just not fun necessarily. Yes, if you know what I mean, that's, that's it, what because yeah. that's what I found Speak from for it. Speak for yourself. Was, well, not for you. It's not. You're there with your ripped up calves. You know, your pulled buttocks. The whole disaster tied to a board. Oh, it's no fun for the actor. We realise that. But the um, but I think after it because it's still playing in your mind because it so it doesn't have to be. That's what I felt from that more than any other Beckett that I've seen because a lot of them are just like even Endgame, which I know some people are a bit. I love Endgame. Yeah. Endgame's you know, look at the favorite. world and look at these trousers. Is one of my favourite jokes. <laughs> Um, but you'd have to look that up. And I always, I read, I read Endgame at university, but that was fifteen years ago now. So it's all gone. It get, I'll tell you what, it gets easier the older you get. The more I still, I always say, it, but the the greatest opening line ever for anything, and in for a stand-up act, and it's somewhere like Michael McIntyre to start with, and everyone else, which is "Birth was the death of him," <laughs> and that "Birth was the death of him." And then I was listening to Savages the other day. They've got a fantastic new album, and there's just a line in one of their songs which is, uh, "I understand the urgency of life." And I understand the urgency of life and birth was the death of him. Go very well together. <laughs> so, Lisa, you've brought a selection of books with you. Um, what's your first book? Well, so I brought it back to a Radio 4 style. Very good. Well, you know what it's like? I didn't actually bring all my books because I'm living between here and New York at the moment. So uh, I couldn't carry them all. But I'm just digesting my Christmas presents. And nice. now having read them, you know, I'm wondering... Why is it my brother sent me Anne Enright's The Green Road for Christmas, which is about a dysfunctional family returning after the, the death of their father. And one of the characters is a dysfunctional um, alcoholic failed actress. <laughs> Oh, right, right. <laughs> so, um, um, so I read Anne Enright. Um, could be worse. He could have cut you a uh, long day's journey into night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Green Road Over Christmas, which, which actually was an extraordinary novel. Um, I've heard so much about Anne Enright, and I've still not read any of hers, and I feel a bit embarrassed that I haven't because. Yeah, I've heard that she's a wonderful writer. Sorry, what did you like about it? Well, I think one of the things about her is she's obviously emerging from, um, you know, a highly literary background. She's drenched in the poetry, but there's no... Um, she manages to create a, a photograph of modern Ireland that wow. avoids all the kind of pitfalls of the uh, and challenges kind of modern preoccupations with the Celtic tiger and capitalism and the breakup of the family and the, you know the 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 Irish family patterns the kind of the powerful matriarch the kind of inherent misogyny she just touches on all of these kind of wounds that we don't really manage to see ourselves very clearly and um, we're we're quite comfortable with the whole kind of the abuse and the Angela's ashes and the John McGarrens and the things like that but I don't think that we have fully have a good picture of ourselves in modern Ireland today it's funny I was at a debate last night with the Irish Literature Literature Society with Marina Carr and Declan Kybird and you know we're coming up to 1916 and, and we're trying to take a good stark look at ourselves and what are we and I think we're really blindsided you know we're very kind of 
broken society. And I don't think that we have a, a, a good grasp or holistic view of ourselves at all. Um, you know, we've been selling ourselves with the diddly Irish for so long, the kind of uh, a cross between the kind of the raw Dubliners and the... the, the and the things we're kind of exporting, um, the, the Flatleys and the and then the kind of the damaged Ireland, the, the Angela's ashes, you know. <laughs> I remember when my father read that book, he threw it down and he went, Jez, you'd swear no one ever suffered. <laughs> 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 and so that kind of suffering and the, the whole tragedy and the fallout of the breakdown of the Catholic Church and the hole that had. But I don't think we have a kind of nuanced view of ourselves today. And writers like Anne Enright, who have avoids all of those stereotypes and takes a very stark look at ourselves and our all of our kind of multicultural capitalism, you know, fat and wealth and, and problems and social ills and uh, resentments and, and deep rooted traumas that were never addressed and things like that, I think is is startling and necessary. And so um, despite the, the kind of what I thought was an obvious jab from my elder brother, I was it was a real gift, actually, because it is one of the things I live in exile. Beckett lived in exile. And you're trying to kind of grasp a sense of yourself and your national identity and do that from abroad and do that through literature. And mm. it can be tricky, um, you know, particularly as a nation, we're so desperate to try and, and sell ourselves in that way. You know, I don't think the English do that as much. But then I suppose English, what you end up is people worrying that they don't have any identity. If you're Southern English, I... whereas then what you might have with, for instance, Irish is uh, you have an identity thrust upon you, uh, which is then filled with cliches. I don't know. Is, I'm, can... I'm trying to work out what the... Uh... Do you know, this This is going to... I hope this doesn't seem too bad as a friend, but I don't remember... Where did you grow up? I didn't grow up. No. I arrived. I was actually, while this cardigan was being made, um, Alan Turing was in charge of the Singer sewing machine and uh, he also knitted me in home counties. So no, I no have, where exactly? In a village that they where they. Why don't you want to say? I can say because you wouldn't have heard the village. That's but what why. bit of what home county? It's, yeah. it's down the end of the Metro line, so which is why I love Metro Land, John Betjeman. I love all of that stuff about the whole metropolitan line. Hertfordshire. Okay, right, I think so I it's did Hertfordshire. Know that. Yeah. It's a small village. Uh, it's a village called Cheney's. It's a little village. It Isn't has a proper pub. No, and. <laughs> uh, and it's that I bit where you also don't realise. Like I, I am from the, a very Englishy English background, mm. and I think I have a lot of the kind of the, the middle class, you know, vicarish traits that come from, you know, that that environment of being brought up in the countryside with a level of privilege and all of those things. See, I think... and therefore my identity probably is, you know, that that's why Betjamin and Larkin and all of those things yeah. are the things, yeah. or you know. The, the, all of the, the, those those 80s bands the, you know all of that Smith stuff as well the kitchen sink Billy Liar all of those things are... I'm a lot more like Billy Childish than Billy Billy Liar I'm like estuary grammar school like um, uh, although this is more recent but like things like Dr Feelgood things like um, Billy Childish anything that's of that estuary and speaks of like people on a real roller coaster through life and circumstance uh, with with like my accent but better 
more so. That's my. That's what I've decided is my culture. But do you have a sense of belonging, a sense of home no. in that? In fact, no, because when I was growing up in Orpington, I absolutely hated it. Sorry to people in Orpington listening. But I felt so frustrated so much. And all my life growing up, I was like, London, London. And, and then similarly, now I feel sort of like I'm being forced out of London and like the London I love is 20 years out of date and you know it's it's a very interesting time in terms of like what I feel is my place and do you feel English? Any place. Do you feel English? Uh, yeah well I guess I just would say well, are yes, you embarrassed I'm, to exist? Oh, I'm very embarrassed to exist. <laughs> you Thank feel you. English then that's, that's the correct. <laughs> but I wish uh... I was Scottish that's definitely true of me like <laughs> I love Glasgow more than anything and I wish I lived there and I'm trying to sort it to move there but. See that's what we were talking about where you, you I wish feel I was you're Scottish not, not exactly spiritual home but the kind of like Manchester for me has always been for the moment that I went there and that's kind of that area where some of my family originally come from and you go oh I like this I like this kind of uh, not so much now but that industrial landscape where you can Oof. all the things you didn't actually have to be brought up and have to suffer any of the pain but you can now buy the postcard of <laughs> I'm very typical I think of that kind of you know oh my god <laughs> accessing your pain through <laughs> yeah well done, everyone else, for feeling so much pain for the rickets and the scurvy. I'm now buying a book about you and rather uh, enjoying it living through your life. Wow, you're a bit like Ken Loach, where the, the poor turns you on. Oh, no. Oh, no, not the poor, necessarily. Just the hard done by. Not even the hard done by, really. Well, I do like a Ken Loach film, but I prefer Billy Life. I like to have a dreamer who should have gone to London with Julie Christie. Why does he get off to go and buy the milk as an alibi and go back imagining he's still king of Ambrosia? Thanks oh, for spoiling Billy that liar. for me, because I'm literally halfway through that book. What, the film? And I didn't know what happened. I've not oh, seen the film. Julie Christie's not in the book. She's only in the film. <laughs> yes, right? yes. Don't yeah, pretend yeah, that you yeah, didn't yeah, just yeah, spoil yeah, yeah. that book for me. I've been enjoying it a lot. I like it. It's, it's very a, It's funny. a cracking book. It's not exactly Spirited. the same as film. Spirited. So that was Sorry. so. Anne Enright is uh, the first one, and that led me on to. I'm, Do you know what's really annoying is? I just wanted to talk about Beckett with Lisa because I become, I just get more and more obsessed with it. But you guys can, you're an actor, not Beckett. Person. Well, I have to say, a lot of my books that I have been reading are Beckett related, and I was trying to get to the source of Beckett, and um, I've been reading a fair amount of Dante um, and the Divine Comedy, um, and to try and have a look at Beckett's inspiration. And Be- Beckett was. Obviously, writing from a place of exile and wrote, you know, his work is very steeped in Ireland and in his kind of primary domestic pain, you know, his earliest memories. Even this old man writing in his late 70s is still going back to, you know, the insults his mother threw him walking down the street, you know. Um, it's amazing how, how those, the first cut is the deepest. Um, and these early preoccupations that he uses as his main source of, of pain. And I think because he puts his finger on something so deep and so personal it becomes universal. And in a way, so did Dante, exiled from Florence and and writing his way back to it and to his sense of home um, and writing his way through exile. And I've been kind of interested in that kind of notion of exile as a muse, you know, um, and how much do you have to kind of manifest that, self-manifest it, to kind of create it, or how much of it is real, how much of it is necessary. Um, in order to be able to see yourself or look objectively or put your finger on the pulse. So I've been kind of interested but a little bit preoccupied with that. So I've been reading a little bit around that um, at the moment. And then someone sent me uh, The Beckett Actor, um, which is a biography of Jack McGarren's Beckett's, um, you know, one of his leading interpreters, male actor. And that was a little 
disconcerting as he kind of died uh, lonely and ill and slightly oh, mad great. in New York. So I was tucked oh, up delight. in Washington Square going, <laughs> i got to get out of here. <laughs> um, <laughs> get what I do and go, oh good, someone else has done it for me. <laughs> I won't have to. Do. Well done, Jack. Thank you very much for dying so alone. Oh my word. That is such a winning strategy for not freaking out if you find out that Someone you like? Wow! It's also that's so useful. You, you go, you go. This is me, they and then you go. Teacher. Well, if this is me, this for you know many worlds interpretation. It turns out this is me, but that me's already done that, so I better do something else. Oh, I have to, I'm going to have a milkshake instead. That's so good. Oh, I think I'm on my Anthony Robbins trip now. I'm going to be going around America and powering people. Sometimes <laughs> when I'm great, but sometimes you know when you think like if you've had like you know in your family maybe people who've suffered a lot or had a lot of difficult stuff and then you think well that's my genetic makeup that's who I am no they did that for me yeah. so I don't have to do that oh my do word. you know what's you really interesting life? have you read David Van no what, uh, Dirt. what did you oh he's extraordinary he he seems to have one of those really unfortunate families and you hear about these where tragedy just descends on them yeah. like a low cloud over Manchester <laughs> but um he has suicide left, right and centre in his family and he chose Dirk to, to write about his father's suicide. It's a fascinating book. So they go out to this island in this kind of remote archipelago and go shooting and um, obviously the the owner's sound of the, the gun is always, you know, prevalent, uh, the image of it. And then halfway through the book, he begins again. But this time, it's he who kill, kills himself not the father. And it just kind of shows how any of us can be left holding the gun in a situation like that. Um, I've always been kind of struck by that, you know, that the suicide is, is hovering and any one of us can have it. Uh, you were just talking about suicide there or depression or, you know, uh, it's an amazing thing. It, beca- it becomes a kind of family illness, uh, societal illness. And, uh, you know, I don't think any, any one of us can fall through those kind of social cracks. Mm. It's not that one of us is essentially pre-dis. What's the phrase? Yeah, predisposed to predisposed yeah. to this. Um, I just kind of I wouldn't want to be too cocky in those sort of situations. I think you're right. You know, oh no! Get, get Don't trapped. be too cocky. Oh no! Now, now my life. Don't listen to her. <laughs> Follow my way of living your life. Empower yourself, Justin. <laughs> But that, that's no, an interesting thing where, you t- like the myth, when you get trapped in your own family myth, I think of, you know, like, for instance, with Ernest Hemingway, mm. and then it was Margot Hemingway, wasn't it? You know, mm. and there's, there's, but it's, I think that, that idea of myth and that bit of, once you start to believe that, uh, oh, it turns out this, this, this is just a destiny because it's happened before and therefore it's going to happen again. Mm. And it's a bit like when we're talking with A.L. Kennedy, that moment where once you realise that by writing or creating or doing whatever you can, that you can go, well, I can work this this reality that I might have been mine, I can work out and turn into another thing, mm. whether it's an epic novel or a haiku yeah. or a clary hue. What's a clary hue? Do you know what? I can't remember. Ha! So uh, look it up. Look up. Let's all look up clary hue afterwards. So on the... Uh, you, what's the uh, first book on the ah uh, classic? Now this is something that we love, which is the fact that uh, Raymond Carver. It comes up Carver, in every single. No, it it, it started no, off. Knows. There was a lot of Vonnegut. We were Vonnegut heavy, uh-huh. but there's nothing wrong with going. Uh, it turns out lost people like Raymond Carver. Well, I'm, I'm kind of just in love with short story. 
you know, and I read a lot of poetry. Um, um, Travelling a lot, sometimes that's all you're able to really digest. And also holding so much text in your head when you're learning, I've just learned, uh, you know, another hour of Beckett and you're trying to keep that in your head. And so you need to be careful what you take on and, you know, and so it does kind of limit your reading. So I always kind of delve into poetry. And I think, you know, Carver's just a poet in the slightly longer form and I I adore him Um, and I've just finished reading what we talk about when we talk about love Um, and I I just I find him extraordinary his um, the music in his work Mm. is so great Um, and I just heard him read that story himself and it's just so fast and flat and relentless and Gosh, and do you know, I've, I've never thought to look him up. I, I've downloaded put him in my yeah. head in the past. And for me, the past does not have recordings, which is so ridiculous because there are recordings of people reading their work from 100 years ago. But why yeah. is there no George Orwell? Wow, why is there no? There is no George Orwell. Conspiracy. Isn't that bizarre? Really? When you think he did war broadcasts and stuff, because it was all well day sure? the other day. Is there no, there's no, no George record Orwell. of his voice? Yeah. Fucking hell. Well, that's interesting isn't it oh don't bring one of your communist ideas into it again in your communist jumper <laughs> but that's no, what's his voice I've never li- I've never heard I, his voice and yeah. yet I've read so much of him and I think of him so much and they're not always the best reading sure. but it's very interesting like um, T.S. Eliot I, 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 he's a very interesting uh, reader of his work yes. but it's not necessarily the best yes. you know I think so, someone said that because I, I listened to the full, uh, full quartets done by Paul Schofield ah Philip Schofield Philip Schofield, that's right. Yeah, they this morning <laughs> did a series of. Uh, don't you remember when Faber and Faber and this morning got together and did? So, uh, uh, do we turn again or do we turn? <laughs> the uh, to be fair, the uh, the guy who does the cooking does a lovely reading of Wendy Cope. Um, but that bit where once you've heard some readers like T. S. Eliot, the bit little bit I have heard is because yeah. it's very. It's got a strange clipped. Let mm. us go then, you mm. and I, mm. when the evening is spread out against the sky like a pitch. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and I, sometimes it can ruin the poetry, can't it? I you think go, so. Are they doing... Because not necessarily, sometimes you can't replicate the voice that's in your head mm. with the, 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 the voice that you can project. Mm. But sometimes then someone... Like, in fact, A.L. Kennedy, again, going back to this, A.L. Kennedy is one of my favourite readers of her own work, that when I've seen yes. her at festivals, there is this beautiful moment where you haven't realised that she stopped explaining a little bit of the background of the story and, and started reading it. There is an incredible naturalism. I but know. she's a fantastic comedian as well, so it's, she's got that secret training on the slide. But even if they don't do it well, sometimes it really helps you understand the speech rhythms and yes. where the intention was and why they wrote in the way... That I always, and you get I, a feel. You do. Yeah. Like Auden, for example, he's such a strange way of writing and strange emphasis that I never really understood until I heard him read. I find Auden very hard to memorise for some reason. I was wondering why that is and I have to memorise everything because I have dyslexia and you know I like to kind of make the poems my own and have them and and keep them and steal them and keep them in my head you know for a a great day. So dyslexia and then thinking about the well the Beckett work that you've done is does that have any link in terms of what you decided to do to be able to have the command and the ability to be strapped to a plank on stage and do what you're doing that that in the same way that some stammerers for instance you know that that bit of going the the moment of being able to command language when you're on on stage or singing 
I just wondered whether there's anything about that or not. Yeah, just possibly. No, no, I, I, I do think there is. I have a very, very good memory. And I had to develop that memory as a kid because I, I didn't want to read aloud. I, I find that really humiliating and I find it very difficult to do. Um, and so I used to commit things to memory. It's actually my piano teacher who pointed out that I... Um, had a problem in that regard when I hadn't turned my page and I was pretending to sight read for ages. Ah. Um, and I did that in school a lot, particularly with poetry. And then I found such a kind of joy in, in the power of having things committed to memory and how it sets you free then, and, you know, and how those kind of words can keep you company. And I just loved committing things to poetry or committing things to memory, particularly poems. And so when it came to Beckett, I... I, I it was the first thing I did was I made it my own. And I think that kind of personal pursuit into the poetry for a start um, and, and the confidence to go into such poetry um, and very conscious how poetry is spoken rather than how it looks on a page. Mm. I, I started to pay more attention to maybe the notation and the music behind the poetry. And so, you know, a lot of actors kind of fall at the first hurdle in not I in committing such a difficult text to memory. And um, I suppose I had a head start there. Yeah. Um, but I suppose what I use more with Beckett is the fact that I was a dancer. And I think I'm, I find it easier to become a kind of element and not get hung up on character and um, while performing that type of poetry, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so I guess I, I approach it more as a dancer than a dyslexic. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be part of the self-help course as well. Approach it as yeah. a dancer. But yeah. the, um, do you know who's... This is a bit irrelevant and a bit mm -hmm. uh, flippant, but do you know who's really interesting to hear performing her work? Um, Sylvia Plath. Yeah. Because her voice is so... It's strange, like, howling, like that. Yes. Very interesting. See, yeah. I avoid this a lot of the time. I, I see that there's a huge, you know, the British Library, of enormous kind of archive of people, and sometimes I'm just thinking, I don't want to hear what their voice is like. It's, it's like that moment when you, you hear there's... Well, I always think of Julie Birchall, that first time you actually hear a voice is so different to the voice you have imagined yes. has been writing these edgy pieces about the nature of punk in 1979. And then you get used to it, and it's not in any way, but it's that bit where you go, ah, oh, I've had an inner voice that's been doing this for too long for me to now actually hear the reality. I think it's kinder to read her than hear her. I think... Um... Oof, it's yeah. not kind for yeah. me. I can't. I can't bear it. I can't You'll bear enjoy it. reading Morris's take on her then in his autobiography. Oh, I bet he's scathing. Is oh, he he's scathing? a little bit cheeky. Yeah, he can be <laughs> a little bit cheeky. No, I don't. So I don't enjoy Raymond Carver and, and you. Uh, yeah, I mean, he had, it's interesting because we were saying about that fact that it seems so effortless, and yet therefore there must be an enormous amount of effort to create these stories, which kind of seem to have very often almost no story to them, and yet 
an incredibly you know it's one of those things where nothing happens and yet in in the seeming nothingness you realize everything yeah the immensity and the drinking observing the drinking particularly in that story you know you're figuring out god he's had 14 gins by the time he says this line you know and the action that's taking place and the light and the elements and how they seem to be all part of telling the story these little incidentals Another genius in this form is Lydia Davis, and I've become obsessed with her short stories. Um, And she is a real renegade in how she kind of bends the form a lot. And there's a very thin line between poetry and prose, which is is gorgeous, and I think just how it should be. And uh, I find her fascinating in the same way. So was she initially a poet, and she's, or does she do both? She does poetry and prose. I just because we were talking about Elizabeth Smart a few. Oh yes, uh, I love. And and Elizabeth Smart is is just absolutely fantastic. And that has that bit where you go the reason near Grand Central Station. It's the one that we always get get the the yeah. Uh, I sat down as I was weeping. I sat down (laughs) near Grand as I sat down by Grand Central Station and wet. Look anyway, she's crying near a station (laughs) and the rest of it's beautiful. This is like there's a film I saw last year that I absolutely loved called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. And I tried to. It's a kind of vampire flick, isn't it? It's so great. I tried to tweet about it and I got the name wrong four times. I it was like, I really liked a woman who's walking at home. Like, yeah. Oh, Jesus. I like the film. No, oh, really if you good. like the title of this one. Oh, how he is often right. <laughs> oh, thank heavens. I thought it was the other one you were talking about. What's the other right? one? Stupid old man wearing a stupid <laughs> old cardigan. Yeah. This one's just called Tank Top Idiot. <laughs> no, I've had a lot of. Oh, again, these are great. I, yeah. I feel very this silly, is... actually, because you've got Eleanor Ferranti, which, again, I've heard so much about her writing and haven't yet read. I'm the same. Lydia Davis, I just got given and still haven't yet read. And um, yeah, and so these are short stories by Eleanor. They Ferranti. are. And then I brought Sharon Olds, who I absolutely adore. Um, and and I always kind of turn to her. Uh, she she also wrote a stag's leap recently. She published, which is all about her divorce. Um, and she's an extraordinarily brave and poignant and raw poet. I I wow. adore her. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't read the the troubling love, which was. Have you read was, any of the trilogy? No. Me neither. But everyone's, everyone's talking, talking about, about it. it. I always avoid doing <laughs> But I, I, what I usually do is while everyone's really talking about it, yeah. I'm like, no, no. And then three years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I can be like, I am re- rediscovering I've bought them all. I've bought them all. I'm just waiting for a, a time when I'm not shoving text into my head. Yeah. But these short stories I'm working with the London Sinfonetta Orchestra um, oh. and doing a reading of them. Um, so they're Playhouse. Oh, I just went to see uh, Grey Gardens there. How it's moved so it what, was is really a play version they've of made Grey a play version Ooh, of yes, Grey Gardens sorry by the way yeah. I got distracted because this always happens is uh, I've started reading this book and it's, it's brilliant excellent. the collected stories of Lydia Davis so but I suddenly woke up again then oh not woke up I became less embroiled and uh, but it was really interesting because um, for those who don't know Grey Gardens is a documentary made by the Mells Brothers in 1974 75 I think uh, about two women the Bouvier family who have they still live in a crumbling mansion in the Hamptons mm. and have you seen the documentary no it's incredible right it's because they are the daughter has clearly had mental health issues had problems she was a kind of debutante style thing in the in the in the 40s 30s 40s in New York the mother is, and now as opposed to living the glittering society people you know Jackie Kennedy is still alive she's part they're part of you know the Bouvier family they live in this crumbling wreck and 
what I thought was the musical, the reason that I, uh, Sheila Hancock was brilliant in it. Yeah, she's amazing. I actually liked it, even though she trounced me on just a minute, and I haven't forgotten Sheila. Um, but uh, <laughs> just a minute, she is, is brilliant. Vicious. Jenna Russell is brilliant in it. Jenna Russell, and because the character she's playing, Edie, is kind of quite... You know when someone is so preposterous mm. that if someone plays them well, people go, well, I felt that, that it was a bit preposterous. You go, no, that's what that person... Like, like in American mm. Splendor. When you see the film of American yes. Splendor, you think, oh, they've really kind of overdone these characters, haven't they? And then at the end, the real, or sometimes throughout the film, the real characters pop up and you go, wow, that really <laughs> is that guy's voice. But it was really... It was the second half is great because the second half is basically following on from the document. It is, well, it's actually is the documentary but the first half is a little bit too much of and now we go back to 1940 and this is how it all happened you go could have taken five minutes yeah. second half, some lovely dancing as well this is all linking well by the mm. way because i saw philip ridley play at southern playhouse as well oh yeah everything links yeah. um but it's sorry so going back to yes the the well in fact the linking of music the use of music with re, and, and yes. how you get Get the two to work together mm -hmm. and not against each other. Yes, it's it's a thin line. It really is. I just did a, I performed a poem with Bill Whelan, and it was an unpublished poem called "A Lighting Plot," uh, by Seamus Heaney for Brian Friel. It was a tribute. Absolutely stunning poem. Quite a tricky one. Um, and I set it to music, or we set it to music, Bill Whelan and I of Riverdance fame. And, you know, it's a very thin line. Something like that could be so cheesy. And, you know, when the human voice is a musical instrument in its own right, it's very hard to know how to accompany that without it being an embellishment or sounding like... Uh, you know, an advert, um, and and yeah, to get that kind of balance between, to find the harmony between them, and uh, and yeah, what should take lead and what should take, uh, have, you know, prominence. Yeah, I can probably help with that because whenever I did any of my live readings of Mills and Boone, such as <laughs> Rash Intruder, uh, I would either use Vaughan Williams or Philip Glass. And I found that Philip Glass worked very well for Stormy Vigil, the lighthouse one. Does that help? I, it, Massively. You know Ada Moffat from um, Arab Strap? Yeah. It makes me think a bit about Arab Strap because they're a band where a lot of their songs were more spoken word pieces, you know, with the music and how those two things interplayed in about his... He did an album the other year, quite a while ago, actually, called I Can Hear Your Heart. Do you remember that? Yeah. It was short stories put to music and, it, yeah... It, I recommend it, I suppose, is all I'm saying. It's a similar sort of thing. Well, that bit when you... It's like the other... This weekend I did the Slapstick Festival in Bristol mm. and uh, they showed Buster Keaton's Cops, which is oh, fantastic. Wow. And he's... Uh, I'd had an argument with someone beforehand about the fact it's actually ultimately a very miserable film. Uh, but it had this beautiful... Uh, what were they called? The European Silent Virtuoso... Uh, yeah, so I think so, European Silent Virtuoso. Something like that. And playing live, and, and you can see they're reacting as well. Even though they've probably seen it many times, you get the sense that however many times rehearsed they're still reacting to the action they're still it's a beautiful miserable story it's basically Buster Keaton has to try and impress a woman and uh, it ends up with him being chased by loads of policemen and uh, then he manages to run them all into the police station 
and he then gets out, locks the door, and then he walks past the woman, and the woman's there, and uh, and he goes, yeah, I've made something in my life like you told me to, and she goes, yeah, yeah, whatever, and she doesn't want him. Ooh. So he then just goes back into the police station to basically be beaten to death, and the end is his gravestone, or basically just a gravestone with his hat on it. Oh, but it's a very thin line to know when you add something, when it's when it's actually an addition, and when it becomes a, a kind of ugly embellishment and takes something into an entirely different area. There's this amazing artist uh, whose work I've seen recently in um, in New York. He was his name is Gregory Colbert, and he was a photographer with the with National Geographic. But he he understands uh, really deeply dancers and has worked a lot with William Forsythe over the years. And he's got some of his dancers to go out on field missions. So swimming with beluga whales, uh, free divers, uh, to being with orangutans, dancing in a storm with grass. And to see these dancers, you know, asleep on the back of a stingray or uh, swimming with dolphins. And it's so beautiful and the first time I saw it was before he'd added any music and I think it was the probably the one of the most moving experiences I've ever had and having a life kind of at the moment which is drenched in Beckett which is a particularly stark worldview and very difficult and very painful and all surrounding trauma and everything like that there's actually no animals there's no dolphins in Beckett there's no <laughs> orangutans in Beckett and it was a wonderful kind of eye-opener about other perspectives and you know that another type of intelligence and innate intelligence and nature and you don't get any of that in Beckett. Well the Beckett estate don't let you do an all orangutan version of Waiting for God though, do they? doesn't matter how many times Not you ask, yet. we'll shave the orangutans we'll usually own McKern's hat. They won't let you. If you put peanut butter on their teeth it really does look like yeah. they're talking it really does look like that. The so. trouble is it ruins the end because right at the end when the orangutan says let's go, they lose the concentration they start going, which does not help with doesn't understanding of the text. No. So but we, anyway, I went back this year and he had written a whole libretto and and added this 24-hour uh, song cycle, he called it. And it was beautiful, amazing. But unfortunately, it ended up being like a perfume advert. Wow. And it detracted entirely from the experience. It was amazing for, you realise, it sounds so heavy, but you were making the music yourself while you're watching these dancers dance. And uh, it kind of, if you fill in every gap for the audience, you don't give them any room to participate. I think I've become a little bit attuned to that with Beckett, is that you, you can't sell the audience everything. You have to give them space to mm. bring... Well, that's that thing, I think, you know, that lovely comment who was described a lot of his work as being a Rorschach test. Wow. I can't remember who. It was a guy who wrote, he was, oh, Mercia. Uh, oh, I can't remember. I, I read his book a while ago. And he, 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 in fact, he'd been to the same school, I think, in Enniskillen, but about five, ten years later. So he was always fascinated by Beckett as he watched this guy. And he said, that, you know, watching Beckett's work, is it's not explained to you. So, in fact, what you take from it a lot of the time is you have been given the ink blot and you are part of that process. Yeah. But I find yeah, that, that bit of music where when you watch a film which doesn't constantly tell you what to feel mm. and you go, oh, the silence really works. There are certain, like some of the Japanese uh, no. films of yeah. Takeshi Kitano or when you watch something, well, when you watch something like Imar Bergman or Tarkovsky mm. and you go, oh, yeah, this I'm not constantly being told. Such an insult to our intelligence. And actually when you are um, allowed to bring your own space and not everything is pointed, I think that's maybe why I like the short stories so much is that there's so many kind of gaps. Especially with Carver. Like, yeah. Especially with Carver. He's yeah. not 
you know, he's not flowering around. Yeah. He's just giving you enough so that it's like papering over this incredible chasm of feeling and despair and repression and life. And what he's showing you is the tiny little... And there's space for you to bring mm. your own imaginative oh, powers. It was just like just seeing Eddie Izzard's show the other night. It was extraordinary. You know, he takes us on his wild journey, but there's space for us to be there. It's not some sort of perfunctory step-by-step narrative. Yeah. It's these crazy flashes of, of thought and history classes and you see him as a little boy to travelling through France to you know and and you're taken on this crazy journey and i just find when people are actually telling the truth they they they're not preoccupied with the 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 whole sentence they well, just take you right into the heart of it well it's like when you're structuring a stand up show for like an hour long show and you, if you do have a narrative on it you're always aware of how reduced you have had to make the truth of life yeah. to put that narrative on. You're yeah. always aware of how neat you've had to make it to yeah. to make it feel like a story. So yeah. I, I wanted to say, because we're talking about short stories, I read some cracking short stories, um, cracking, I read some absolutely brilliant short stories by Kevin Barry. I love Kevin writer. Barry, he's extraordinary. I got that book at Christmas. He's amazing. He's so good, right? I know, he's um, amazing. It's called Dark Lies the Island mm. and There Are Little Kingdoms. Yeah. There's two of them. I read them both. Absolutely brilliant. My friend Maeve Higgins, who's a comedian, ABS. who has also just written a book, which has just come out, wow. a book of short, funny essays, which is incredible. She wrote another one called We Have a Good Time, Don't We? And she's written a new one, which I haven't yet. And she does um, a night with John Ronson. Doesn't you should go to Maeve and John's night in New York because it's called I'm New Here and it's about people moving to New York and about that experience of living in this new place. and Nearly getting knocked down every five minutes. Yes, it's, right. it's just such a great wow. venue in, in Brooklyn as well. It's it's a it's a great room. So uh, we've Deadly. run out of time. Uh, what were the pictures of the books that you had taken on your phone? To bring oh, so just more Beckett. Just more Beckett. So in the end, even though mm. obviously you don't want to just go, I'm not just a, a Beckett actor. Once you become embroiled, and because you've been embroiled for over ten years, that I presume the idea it, it does become that Pacino thing. You know, just when you thought, uh, you know, you just when you think you're. I'll out. tell you what it's like. Having smoked Marlboro Red for so long and you're trying to be good because you know it's better for you to have a silk up light and you're sucking and sucking, it's just not the same. And so every time I go back to Beckett and you definitely get a a lungful there. (laughs) Um, And he's extraordinary. The pickings are so rich and so persuasive, it's hard to let him go. So I'm continuing to adapt some of his late text um, but yeah interspersed with other projects comedy would be good (laughs) (laughs) my mum says to me you know comedy next Liz you'd be like Joan Crawford (laughs) (laughs) but there is some I mean admittedly yeah you're because the, as, as it goes on as the work gets later it does become bleak and there are fewer jokes aren't there oh yeah because that's what I, I, unfortunately I'm still I'm still stuck between somewhere between 1930 and about 1962 and there's still laughs ahoy <laughs> um, right. thank you very much Lisa thank you and, real uh, privilege <laughs> thanks very much for listening <laughs> bye 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 hello we wanted to say thank you to people who have contributed to our podcast. We really appreciate it because it helps us to book the studio and hopefully eventually pay the guests for coming on. Um, so we wanted And you can to go say, to patreon.com, uh, yeah. which is where we are, or just have a look at uh, cosmicgenome.com slash shambles. Who's been helping us this week, Josie? We should also say... Please don't think it's uh, obligatory in any way. No, 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 no that's fine. They'll make their own decision. Don't be, uh, don't be overly, underly pushy. We wish to give this to you for free, obviously. All episodes and oh, reading lists sake. are available no at cosmicgenehome.com. I'll tell you what, you'd have made nothing levels. if you were a street performer. Your hat would be empty. Absolutely yes, empty. Yes, but it'd be a lovely, right, honest do the thank hat. thank yous. Uh, Cheryl Franklin, 
John Dunnett, Peter Sutton, Ruth Sherville. Uh, oh, now, now that's interesting. Sorry if I can't say their name. Aylfa? Aylfa? Is that, no, it's Aylfa. I can't see. I've, uh, I'm so sorry. I've not come across your name before and I hate sounding ignorant, uh, but it's about A I L B H E. I'm so sorry. What an idiot not to know how to pronounce that. Craig Naples, Ali and Jim Dixon, Dermot Fitzsimmons, Stuart Hart, Julian Willis, Donald Ogg, Catherine Harrington, Janak Pun, Mark Fee, Gina Sartori, Stuart Moore, Jackie Crawford, Michael Kilminster, David O'Mahony, Eugene Doherty and Nicola Butlers. Thank you so much for backing our podcast. Thanks for listening to it. I really hope you enjoy it. Bye. And I'm glad that you do. Don't drag it out. It's longer than the podcast. <laughs> uh, I've got a little footnote to our podcast uh, that Lisa Dewan's new one moment. Oh, God. I'll start that again. Lisa Dewan's new one-woman show is the world premiere of Nose Knife by Samuel Beckett. It's a selection of his texts uh, for nothing. What? It's free. No. no, that's what it's called. Oh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Nose Knife by Samuel Beckett. A selection of his texts for nothing. Uh, it's at the Old Vic and it's from September 29th and tickets are from £10. And it's only two weeks and it ends on October the 15th. So we should all go together and then we'll have a dosa party afterwards. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, please, if you can get to London, give it a go. I think it'll be fascinating. And I'm sorry that I was like, for nothing? Do you mean it's free? I'm, what can I say? You can, you've only got the clay to work with that you've been given and I'm a dullard, but I'm trying very hard.